to this topic, which is a, a, a crazy fraught topic. Um, how do we reconcile the fact that you are good and do good, and yet we see evil in the world around us? Lord, help us to have our minds tuned to your word. Help us to have our hearts tuned uh, to your gospel. And help us as we seek to help unbelievers, our, our friends, our neighbors, our family, uh, who are, uh, have this as something that stands in the way of them in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to be helpful to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if, uh, according to a poll of American adults, most people, if they could ask God one question, it would be, why is there pain and suffering in the world? No surprise. In his book, The Problem of Pain, uh, C.S. Lewis summarized the problem of evil in this way. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy, therefore God either lacks goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. That's how Lewis began his discussion of uh, understanding the problem of evil. Let's look at, philosophically, this question of the, prop, the problem of evil. Practically, uh, we hear it in lots of forms. It's probably one of the most common objections to, uh, to Christianity that you can find in uh, people around us. It can take many forms, the basic uh, objection. If there really is a good God, why is there so much evil in the world? Why was there a Holocaust? Why was there a Hitler or a Stalin or a Mao? Why was there a September 11th? Unbelievers say, I can't possibly believe in a God who would allow X to happen, whatever their particular X is. And Christians wonder, if God can really do anything, why doesn't he get rid of evil? How did sin come into the world in the first place if God is really good? I actually had a Q&A with the kids at Awana on the, on, we were studying the devil on Friday night, and one of the kids asked a really good question. Uh, it's related to this. It's not directly the same question, but it's, it's similar. Why did God make Satan if he knew that he was going to become evil? I said, that's a good question. <laughs> we talk about it. We tend to ask, our, 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 our instinct is to ask, why, Lord, when our experience and our knowledge of who God is does not seem to line up, especially when we're going through suffering. We're going to talk about that in the book of James, actually. Um, the famous utilitarian philosopher John Stuart Mill, if you've heard of him, summarizes the essence of the dilemma this way. If God desires there to be evil in the world, if he wants evil in the world, if he desires there to be evil in the world, then he is not good. If he does not desire there to be evil, yet evil exists then he is not omnipotent, not all-powerful. Thus, if evil exists, God is either not loving or not all-powerful. Evil casts a shadow over God's love and power. This is no small dilemma, and answers to it are exceedingly difficult. End quote. That was John Stuart Mill's. So what is at stake as we consider this question, at least to unbelievers, is the idea that we cannot have a God who is both all-powerful 
and all good, which is exactly what the Bible, of course, presents him as. So this is the problem that we will try to reconcile this morning and conclude that despite evil in the world, we do know, in fact, that God is all-powerful and that he is all-good. And we actually can, can look to the scriptures to find reasoning for how that works. All right, so let's look first at common solutions throughout history to the problem of evil. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to a word, theodicy, Theodicy is a noun. It's, it means the vindication of the divine attributes, particularly holiness and justice, in establishing or allowing the existence of physical and moral evil. I'll read that again. A vindication, a justification, if you will, of the divine attributes, particularly holiness and justice, in establishing or allowing the existence of physical and moral evil. Evil. So it's a justification of, of God. Theodicy. So here's a few common solutions to the problem of evil, a few ways that people try and justify God, if you will, to, to give the, the meaning of the term, the original term. Number one, how do, we, how do we solve this problem? Well, some people go the route of saying that evil is an illusion. It's just an illusion, it's unreal. Evil is unreal. This is the solution um, that Eastern mysticism and Buddhism find refuge in, that evil is just an illusion. Uh, Since evil is just an illusion, then the way to overcome it is to to put mind over matter and to uh, enter into states of consciousness that that come to recognize that evil is an illusion. I would say there's just some some pretty simple problems with that idea. Um, it breaks down and it falls flat with human experience. I mean, it's just it's just pretty simple. We evil is self-evident in the world, and its reality is self-evident. Why would God allow such an illusion to overtake us so that we'd be wandering in a world where evil doesn't actually exist, but we have the illusion that it exists? It just doesn't make any sense. All right. A second option is that evil is just good in disguise. Evil is good in disguise. This is the, this is the route Taoism takes. So you could, you could say, you could twist Romans 8.28 to fit this idea. It would be a true twist. It would be a, a mangling of Romans 8.28. But the idea being, from God's perspective, all things are good, even though they may seem bad from our point of view. But God sees all things that happen as good. And Romans 8.28 does not say that all things are good, though, does it? It says that all things will work for good for a particular group of people, God's children. So Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for our good, Because what? Because those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So it starts with conformity to Jesus and ends in glorification. So the trajectory of all things works for the good of God's children. But that doesn't mean that the things that they experience along the way that are suffering are not true evils. The evil out of which God brings good, the Bible's perspective, The evil out of which God brings good is real evil. Let's take an example. From the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, 
comes what? The redemptive act of the cross. But the goodness that came from Jesus' redemption of sinners at the cross does not minimize the wickedness of Judas' act. Was it good for Judas to betray Jesus? It was not. And Jesus himself says, Woe to the man through whom this comes. It would be better for that man if he'd never been born. It was, it was an obscene evil, even though it brought about a good act. Evil is good, the fails because it obscures the real and obvious difference between good and evil, and it's an implicit denial of the reality of evil. Really, you're just back to the, um, back to the first one almost. It's just an illusion. It's an illusion in the sense that you think it's evil when it's really just good. A third option would be dualism, which is God and Satan locked in an eternal battle. This is, uh, historically, the, the um, dualism can be found in Zoroastrianism, which is a, an ancient uh, religion based in Iran, which still has some followers today. Um, uh, Manichaeism, which you probably only would know from the fact that uh, Augustine was, uh, St. Augustine was once a Manichae, and he... Um, then grew up, eventually rejected that in favor of Christianity, but, but that's also a dualistic system. We know it in popular culture from Star Wars, right? We know that there's the dark side of the Force and the light side of the Force, and the two are, you know, it doesn't really portray the dark side in, in true evil terms. You know, what does it say? We have to bring balance to the Force. Well, balance between what? Between the dark and the light. How, you know, if, if dark and light have to be in balance, then, you know, there's, there's something weird. Anyway, that's obviously not, no one follow. well, there are some people that follow the religion of stars, but they're, that's, that's a different discussion. But dualism charges that there are two ultimate and opposing forces which are equal in power and eternality. So good and evil have both existed side by side for eternity. God, or the good principle, really wants good, but Satan, or the principle of evil and chaos, thwarts his purpose, wants evil. They're locked in an eternal battle. This view, of course, lets God off the hook for evil by making the existence of evil eternally independent of him. Right? God doesn't have anything to do with evil. Evil has always and forever existed. Right? Okay, problems with this idea. The problem, several problems. One is it excludes the possibility of evil being redeemed. Because if evil is equal in power to God, if the good principle and the evil principle, if God and the devil are each equal in power and equal in eternity, then there's no obvious way to assume that God is going to win in the end. We, one would presume that the battle would just go on forever, locked forever. Um, it also fails a, a test of logic, right? You, you, can't actually, you couldn't actually have two opposing omnipotent beings. If you have two omnipotent beings, each of whom can do anything, then, and they're opposed to one another, then, you know, then you... That, that, does, that just doesn't actually work. This person, this evil being can do absolutely everything it wills. This absolutely good being, an omnipotent being, can do everything that it wants to do. Well, those that, that logically can't actually exist. And finally, it just fails biblically, right? It's just not what the Bible 
<laughs> shows. Satan is not equal in power to God. He is not eternal. He has not always existed. He's a created being. In fact, he's subject to God. And instead, we see God as the only one who does all his will. So, uh, two verses from the Psalms, uh, Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in the deeps. By contrast, we see limitations that Satan must work under. Where do we see, where's the most obvious place where we see the limitations that Satan has to work under? The book of Job, right? Job is unable to harm, Satan is unable to harm Job beyond the bounds of what the Lord himself allows. So Satan is not able to act as an independent agent. He has to work under the direction of God. As Martin Luther says, the the devil is the Lord's devil. He functions within the sovereign purposes of God to achieve the things that are in the eternal decree of God for the salvation of sinners, the damnation of sinners, and the ultimate triumphant destruction over evil. That doesn't resolve everything. But it's absolutely true. The devil is subordinate to God, and he is a created being. Only God reigns. Only God reigns. Satan is no match for God, which gives us hope because, of course, in the end, how do we know that God will triumph over Satan and over sin and over death? Well, we know, one, because of the cross the down payment of that, but also we, we know because ultimately Satan is no match. You know, his, his rebellion against the Lord is a futile rebellion. It will not succeed. All right, another, uh, moving past dualism, we must have evil in order to appreciate good. So evil, therefore, is necessary and, you know, and, uh, in order for good to be good. So, The idea is to appreciate health, I must first understand sickness. To appreciate righteousness, I must first understand wickedness, which, of course, was one of the temptations for Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, this appears like a weighty idea. It seems like it has some, some, makes some sense because we do experience the intensity of appreciating something by way of a contrast. We do appreciate health after we've been sick. You know, if you've been hacking up a lung for two weeks and suddenly you're over it, it's like, you know. And of course, when when you've been well for a long period of time and not sick, you don't tend to wake up in the morning and think, huh, I don't, I'm not coughing. Like, I have neuropathy in my toes from uh, from my diabetes. Uh, And I can go for long periods of time without experiencing it. And I don't wake up in the morning and think, Thank you, Lord, I'm not experiencing neuropathy today. I'm not, my, my toes aren't in pain. Uh, and, but when I am experiencing it, and those times when I do, do have it, it's like, oh, this is painful. And then I'm like, oh, Lord, thank you for the times when I don't have it. But when I have a long period of not experiencing it, then, then I just don't tend to, it just, it's normal, normative. So we do appreciate the good things by, by contrast with the experience of the bad things. Here are the problems with this. If the, experience is nece- if the experience of evil is necessary for the appreciation of good, then 
God himself would have had to experience evil in order to appreciate good as well. If, only, if, even, if, if, good, if evil is necessary for good to be known and appreciated, then in eternity, God would have not known good because he didn't experience evil. Right? Because the Trinity always existed in a fellowship of love without any evil. And that, doesn't, and that's the, that wasn't a problem. There was no difficulty. They understood fully and appreciated fully and, and reveled in the goodness of one another. They didn't need evil to, to, in order to appreciate the goodness of one another. John 1, 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God has always been light. He did not need the darkness in order to know that or to appreciate it. So what that means is this approach really falls back to evil is really good in disguise. And it doesn't make sense with what the Bible teaches about heaven and hell either. What does the saved person anticipate? Experiencing only good. What does the evil, what do, what do the unbelievers anticipate experiencing? Only experiencing suffering. So it's not that the, the need that the need for evil is there in order for the saints to appreciate and to have goodness and experience and know the love of God and the love of one another throughout eternity. We will only experience good. We will not need evil in order to appreciate it. All right. Uh, last one. Evil is just relative. It's just relative. It's all, it's all in your perspective. This is, the, this is a postmodern understanding um, of evil. Uh, this is not really a theodicy per se. It doesn't really seek to justify God. It just seeks to eliminate the necessity for him. Because if there's no such thing as good and evil, and only how you feel about it matters, right? If it's just all a matter of your perspective, there's only social convictions or preferences. You know, there's not anything actually right or wrong. There's just what society prefers and what society doesn't prefer or that you prefer personally and don't prefer. Those are masquerading as good and evil, but good and evil don't really exist. Which, of course, if you're dealing in a materialistic worldview where there is no ultimate reality and no God, you kind of have to have that. Good and evil are just social constructs. Uh, A problem for this is that what do we mean when we say that it matters how you... if, If it only matters how you feel about something, well, you're still saying that the something matters... If we talk about what matters, we are still implying a standard with good and evil or right and wrong. And the second problem is, are we really, really, are we really going to to embrace a worldview that teaches that terrorism and mass murder and genocide and infanticide and mass gassing of humans in World War II and bombings are all morally neutral? It's just a matter of your own perspective. Did Hitler have a right to his perspective on what was good and evil? No, at the end of the day, we believe that there's an objective standard with real good and real evil. And then, here's a, here's a, a so-called, I put it in scare quotes, a, a, a so-called Christian compromise of open theism. This, I think, is, is alluring and terribly dangerous and ultimately utterly unsatisfying. 
open theism. Open theism, or process theology is another form of it, attempts to explain God's sovereignty and man's choice by this. He says, it says, God created the world, but doesn't know and doesn't determine all the outcomes. So God made the world, but he doesn't actually determine what will happen. He doesn't even really know what will happen. God does not know the future, but is in process with the world, existing alongside the world, existing in time and in reality. He's affected, and, and so therefore, when you're suffering, he's suffering with you. He didn't want that to happen. He didn't know, you know, you know, that's, and, and again, that, that feels like, that feels, it's a, it's a false comfort even if it might feel... We don't want a God that, that, couldn't have de- that, that couldn't have made it otherwise, who didn't have the power, or, or is just sitting there wringing his hands alongside your problems. You don't want a God that all he can do is wring his hands. You don't want a God that, do- that didn't know about it, like that was surprised by it. That's a, that's a, horrible, that's a horrible reality. Uh, it makes a pig breakfast also of, say, things like biblical prophecies. Like... If, if God doesn't know the future exhaustively, if God, doesn't, if God doesn't will the future, if he doesn't determine the future, then why bother going to the trouble of foretelling what you're going to do to redeem humanity if you don't actually know whether you can bring it about? But instead, the Bible presents the situation that Jesus and him coming into the world to save sinners was God's plan from before all time. Right? Impossible if God is in process with the world, not really knowing how things are going to turn out. Waiting with us to see how things are going to turn out. By contrast, Acts 4 says, Peter's praying, he says, For truly, Lord, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So they were all gathered against Jesus, conspiring against him to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross was absolutely within the plan and purposes of God. And the evil actions of men were were used to bring it about. But God knew, God planned, God executed and carried it out. We also can't uh, accept open theism if, we, if we're going to take the clear scriptural understanding that God has all things, works out all things, all things are in his hands, and he works things out, all things according to the will of his power. This view robs God of his glory. Don't take refuge in the idea that God didn't know about what was going to happen to you. God couldn't have avoided it. No. We trust a God who can who does, who loves, um, and who knows. All right. Any questions briefly about any of the solutions that we're going to reject about the problem of evil? All the ones we've looked at so far. Is there an aspect of that that Yes, I do think that that's true. I do think that the I do think that it's that it is true, um, 
And I would even say that our experience in heaven will be the more glorious because we will know that we, of what we've been saved from. But that doesn't resolve ultimately the problem of evil as if it wasn't really, um, you know, as if it wasn't actually needed or if it, was, it wasn't actually wrong. He's a, he's a, um, uh, a philosopher. His, his, his school of philosophy is um, utilitarian. So basically, whatever works, let's work with whatever works. Let's set morality based on whatever works. All right, let's set some, by contrast, some stakes in the ground, some simple biblical stakes in the ground. Because in, in one sense, there certainly are answers in the Bible about the problem of evil. But in another sense, I cannot give you a single crisp sentence answer that ties it all up in a bow. The Bible doesn't give us an exhaustive problem to the pro- answer to the problem of evil. We don't have a perfect revol- resolution of this issue as Christians. But we can look at a basic, basic biblical framework. As we've talked about before, our knowledge is limited not unlimited. We are creatures. Our minds are fallen. But just because we can't understand some real things fully doesn't mean we're unable to understand them truly. So what you should hope for is not to be able to figure the problem of evil out. You should say, I want to understand this truly and not fully, realizing that God's not going to reveal all of this. He just isn't going to reveal it all to us until the end. Um, the, the, you, you don't, if, if someone thinks that they've got this problem all tied up in a bow... Uh, I'd I'd be a little hesitant to... um, The complete answer to this has not been revealed to us by God, but we still can trust in a God, even though he has not revealed this to us in full, because of what we do know about him and what he has revealed to us. So even though you're not going to be able to get a full understanding, you're still going to be able to get a true understanding. It's like a father who tells his son, if you imagine a, a father telling his kid, kids playing in the yard, he says, no, get down. Crawl, to the, crawl, crawl toward me. And the, and the kid's like, why? He says, the father doesn't explain, but just says, do it. And the son obeys. He trusts his father. He comes and, you know, he comes and gets to the father. And then the father points out to him some danger that was hanging over his head, something that was about to crash or some, you know, a snake or something. Or that, and it's like, and, and I think there's a little bit of that. God asks us to trust him. God asks us to obey him. He gives us all the data we need to, to obey and trust him. He doesn't give us a full understanding of that until we look back and say, ah, that's what it was all about. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But here is what we do know. God is indeed sovereign. God is perfectly just and righteous. I think think the wonderful little phrase we teach kids, God is great and God is good. And those are the stakes you can eternally set down as deep into the foundation as you can. God is great, and God is good. Therefore, evil is entirely, entirely within the sovereignty of our all-good God. Evil is entirety, entirely within the sovereignty of our all-good God. And the full and complete answer to this has not been revealed to us by God as yet. But we hang our hats on these 
two deep and eternal realities. God is great and God is good. Let's delve in a little bit, long, a little bit further. We can trust God as he's been revealed to us. So, number one, we're going to just look at a lot of scripture here. I'm going to be giving you a lot of quotes. Right now, we're just trying to look at the biblical data and see what it says. Number one, it says, God is the all-powerful governor of his universe. He is the all-power governor of his universe. Again, Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever pleases him. He does nothing that does not please him, and nothing comes about. Genesis 1, God spoke and it came to be. He created and it stood firm. The worlds were created by the word of God. That's all it took. Colossians 1, for by him, by Christ, in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He, again, Jesus, or the Son, is before all things and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. He's in absolute sovereignty. And he's in control of every aspect of his creation, number two. Every aspect of his creation is under his control. Ephesians 1, 11, about our salvation. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. The plan of God who works out everything in conformity to his, with the purpose of his will. Nothing happens apart from the purpose of the will of God. Psalm 33, 15. He who fashions the hearts of them all. That's us. He fashions all of our hearts and observes all our deeds. Number three. God even orchestrates the sins of man to glorify himself in such a way that he is not tainted by them. He is not tainted by the sin that he uses to glorify himself and accomplish his purposes. Exodus 4, 21. And and it's like, you're like, how does that happen? Well, I'm not sure. I can't tell you absolutely. But it's everywhere in Scripture. Exodus 4, with Pharaoh, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Was it right or wrong of Pharaoh to not let Israel go? It was wrong. It was sinful. It was wicked. It was rebellious. It was evil. And yet, who was the one who hardened his heart? Well, We know both. He hardened his own heart, and God hardened his heart. You're like, okay. That's what it says. But is God the author of evil? Absolutely not. Again, we've got to deal with the cross. The cross is where it comes in greatest relief. Think of the actions of Pilate, cowardly washing his hands. Evil or good? Delivering Jesus over to be crucified. Evil. False accusations, false witness, Pharisees bringing all sorts of uh, revilings against him. Evil or good? Evil. Judas. Evil. All used by God to bring about everything that he had predestined to occur for our salvation. 
Number four, God is never blameworthy for evil that occurs. The responsibility for evil, the blame for evil, is always on those who commit it, not on God, never on God. James 1, 13 and 14, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. The temptation comes from an evil source, not from God. Our being led away by it is evil by us, not by God. Number five, because God is holy and he hates evil. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Revelation 4, day and night, the creatures around the throne of God will never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Number six, and this is where we get to it. This is where we really get to where our heart our heart goes. God judges us. We do not judge God. The world gets that backward. Right? The world says you stand in judgment of God. God never allows you to stand in judgment of him. You stand in judgment before him. He never lets you just never allows you to sit in judgment of him. He sits in judgment of you. Right? Romans 9, 19 through 21. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? And Paul's like, I'm so glad you asked it. Let me lay it all out for you. This is how it works. Is that what he does? Who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? The reality is God has rights over you. You have no rights over him. Consider the example of Job. So Job is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus. He is the suffering, righteous servant. He's not suffering due to his sin. He's, He's suffering due to the the wicked devices of Satan. But he knows that God is ultimately behind it. He pours his complaint out to God, and then God comes to him, and again, what does he do? Does he lay out for him, oh, oh Job, here's all the reasons why I did this. You know, let me give you a full explanation. Job's like, I wish God would come into court with me so that he could answer for everything he's done, everything that he's put me through. God comes... God comes and does not answer. Never gives Job an answer as to why. Instead, he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. When you're understand, if your understanding can match mine, I will, t- you know, I'll tell you. But it can't. And he takes Job through the ringer for chapter after chapter after chapter until Job says, I put my hands over my mouth. God never gives him an answer. But we actually do get an answer. We're going to get, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Number seven, God will use evil for an ultimate good purpose, which we may now not fully understand. Joseph 
In Genesis 50, 20, says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that is Joseph picturing Jesus who says, you intended it for evil against me, but I intended it for the salvation of the world. Consider the crucifixion of Jesus. The worst evil, the worst tragedy of human history is the brutal murder of the only person to ever live perfectly. We killed the Son of God. But this injustice, which was the greatest injustice ever committed, is also the most glorious event of human history. It's God's sacrifice of his Son to ransom a people for himself. So, if you, can't get, if, you, if you don't have a problem with the cross, everything else follows from that. If you can get your mind around the cross, that Jesus himself suffered the greatest evil that the world has ever known, and yet God used that for his good, for ultimate good. God can use all sorts of lesser kinds of evil in other places and times in history, even in your own life, for your good. I like to say to my kids, Jesus dying on the cross was the very best thing to ever happen and the very worst thing to ever happen. It was the happiest, saddest day ever. Good Friday. See, God's ultimate purpose is not... His ultimate purpose is not to provide happiness for man, but it's rather to glorify himself. See, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our job, to glorify God and enjoy him forever not to be happy apart from him. And God's purpose will also provide an ultimate and eternal happiness for a number too great to count, like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. God's purpose will accomplish the happiness of an untold multitude. But that's a, that still is a secondary purpose. The primary purpose is the glorification of God. And the glorious thing is that what brings him glory is to save a people for himself. All right, number eight. Scripture does sometimes pull back the curtain and show how God has used evil to advance his purposes. For example, Joseph got to know why his brothers were allowed to sell him into slavery in Egypt. He got the end of the story. We won't always get the end of the story, but sometimes Scripture reveals. Sometimes... God has used evil to advance his purposes to display his mercy and his justice. So Romans 5.20, there's, uh, there's, in this section there's lots of um, uh, scriptures for you to look up. We'll cover some of them. Romans 5.20 and 21. Now the law came in to... So God gave the law. One of the purposes of him giving the law at Sinai was to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It leads to redemption. Christ's sufferings on our behalf, even our sufferings on behalf of Christ, we know something of the purpose. See, Paul sees his sufferings for the church and for the spread of the gospel as similar to Christ's sufferings. Remember when he says, I, build, I fill up in my body the sufferings of Christ? Not because Jesus' sufferings are in any way inadequate or incomplete, but our suffering allows the gospel to, to go forth and, and spread throughout the world. And so, therefore, it is an extension of the sufferings of Jesus. Anytime we witness and we are reviled, we're suffering for the glory of Christ. So when you experience hardship and persecution as a believer, that is accomplishing your 
uh, your good and Jesus' glory, with whether it's Jesus himself or Paul or other believers. All right, number three. Sometimes evil, whether natural evil or moral evil, can come as a shock value to unbelievers, enabling them to gain their attention and promote a change in heart. You know, so the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So we as humans have a tendency to forget God when things are going well, but God can use pain and suffering to accomplish it and arrest us, get our attention, use it as a megaphone to rouse a deaf sinner out of his complacency. So C.S. Lewis in The Business of Heaven said, I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease. At first I'm overwhelmed. All my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be at all times. I remind myself that toys were never intended to possess my heart, but that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. Sometimes... Suffering is for the purpose of the God's fatherly discipline of his children. So Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, he's exhorting them and he says, You've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline or lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Therefore, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. So we see the fire that, that, so, that so, uh, so overwhelms us, or threatens to overwhelm us, is actually for our refinement, that we, might, that we might come out with the gold, with the true gold of true faith. All right, and in the last... Number six, we should trust the God who has revealed himself. Here is God's ultimate plan and purpose. He will one day put an end to pain and suffering and evil forever. So when we see the grand vision of the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, there's nothing evil in it. There's no natural evil. There's no moral evil. No one immoral is allowed to enter, and none of the things uh, like mourning and crying and pain and anything like that and death uh, will be able to enter it. God will put down Satan forever and all time and, and bring his people to a place where evil never will exist or will there be ever any memory of it again. Uh, but then, ultimately, I think the biggest, the closest thing we have to an answer for the problem of evil is that God chose to enter in and experience that evil that we know, and the pain when Jesus came as a man to die on the cross. So where is God in a world of pain and sorrow? The answer is the incarnation. Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and so he knew fatigue and hunger and sorrow and pain. His friends aged, grew sick, died. He's betrayed by a friend, and he entered into all our experience of human agony, and bore all the pain of it on himself. 
So a prof- Peter Kreeft, who's a professor of philosophy at Boston College, he's a Catholic, he said, many Christians try to get God off the hook of suffering. For, try to get God off the hook for suffering. But God put himself on the hook, so to speak, on the cross. It's significant that most objections to the existence of God come for the problem of suffering comes from outside observers who are quite comfortable, whereas those who actually suffer are, as often as not, made into stronger believers by their suffering. That's the idea that our faith is purified through trials. Why is that? In large part because they follow one who was a suffering servant who was despised and rejected and beaten and killed. Unquote. So the answer is Jesus himself. It's not words, it's the word who is made flesh for us. So our answer to the problem of evil is ultimately that we follow the man of sorrows who took on sin, pain, evil, and death for our sake. And then finally, uh, God will one day vindicate himself and his saints So God is going to bring an end to it all, to all rebellion against him. Again, Peter Kreeft. People aren't getting away with evil. Justice delayed in God's economy is not necessarily justice denied. There will come a day when God will settle accounts and people will be held responsible for the evil they've perpetrated and the suffering they've caused. Criticizing God for not doing it now is like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot. We haven't got to the end yet. God is bringing all things out. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He's not doing all the repaying now, but we're to leave vengeance to him because he will repay. And in the scriptures, Jesus, uh, Jesus promises that in the future, he will be totally vindicated and we will be fully delivered from all evil. This is why we pray, thy kingdom come. I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The wicked will no longer prosper on that day. The righteous will no longer suffer. We will see God victorious. We will see our Savior exalted. And in the meantime, God's never going to let his children go. And that's the hope we have in the trials, in the evil, in the suffering. Romans 8 says, Who will separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. For your sake, we're we're faced death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because nothing, all these things, cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the answer to the problem of evil is ultimately Jesus the God-man who took suffering for us and who one day will come back to wrap all things up and bring about perfect justice, bring an end to all evil, and bring in a glorious kingdom where his people will know only good forever. All right. So, again, not a full answer, but a true answer. We can be content with that. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the fact that you are good and you do good. You are great. Your greatness is unsearchable. Uh, and we see all of those resolving in the cross where, where you displayed your perfect power and your perfect righteousness by sending Jesus in place of sinners that he could take the penalty for our sins. 
We pray, Lord, that that would sustain us as we go through the inevitable sufferings of this life and even especially persecution for his name's sake. Lord, may we never lose sight that you are great and you are good and we know that because you loved us and gave your son for us. I pray for my unbelieving friends who are here that they would, that they would seek to put themselves under the protection of the God who loves, the God who knows, the God who will bring about all things justly and uh, will bring an end to sin and everlasting righteousness. We pray these things in his name. Amen.